Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. John Newfeld will begin a five-day topical series entitled God's Man. From the title, you can probably tell where we're headed. But in this series, Dr. Newfeld will provide an honest, biblical perspective on God's design for man. Now let's join Dr. Newfeld as he introduces our series, God's Man. I want to begin by reading two very important texts. First, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The second text from Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now I've read these two texts for an obvious reason. When God created humankind, he created them as male and female. And throughout the Bible, this has great implications. What it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is in most places in the Bible merely assumed, but there is a direction of God's design in male and female, and the reason for it does take shape. I'm going to spend a week helping young boys and young men and perhaps older men as well celebrate godly manhood. In generations past, this would have been a very easy thing to do. We tended to know what godly and ungodly manhood was and wasn't. But today we have allowed those lines and those definitions to become blurred. But before you come to too many conclusions as to what we're going to talk about, let me say to men, it's my aim that if you are a man, that you consider your masculinity to be a precious gift from God. I want you to love being a man. And to women, please don't think I'm neglecting you. First, I want to say to women, it's my aim that you consider your femininity to be a precious gift from God. I want you to love being a woman. And at some time in the future, I have in mind also to do a one-week series directed toward the gift of celebrating godly womanhood. But there is a great value in this kind of series. Parents, I want you to consider how you might be involved in discipling your little boys to become mature and godly men who are proud to become men and know what is meant both to be a man and to be a godly man. And parents, I also want you to consider how you might be involved in discipling your little girls to become mature and godly women, who are proud to become women and know what it is meant both to be a woman and to be a godly woman. 
Now, that I've stated matters in the way that I have, some of you might say, do I suspect here a bit of gender stereotyping going on? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly why I'm speaking about this issue. I think this issue is not only critical, but it's essential to the health of our faith. Let me explain. In the Western world, we're now experiencing a vast moral revolution. There is in Western culture almost nothing left of a biblical worldview which was once central to our culture. In its place is the worldview of moral relativism. This is the idea that there are no roadmaps to describe either where we have been going or where we are going. We're on a journey with no fixed reference points. Not long ago, Time magazine released an article in which they stated that the preponderance of pornography that is now available and to which our young people have been perpetually subjected to has actually rewired the human brain. The way we view sex and the opposite sex and the sexual experience and the understanding of who we are as male and female has vastly shifted. I'm reminded years ago that it was Bob Seger who sang a song about a road trip he was taking. He sang, stood alone on a mountaintop, staring out at the great divide. I could go east, I could go west. It was all up to me to decide. The moral revolution that we're living in right now is not about all of us individually deciding at each juncture where we want to go. It's about deciding as an entire culture. We have as a culture taken several roads without fixed reference points. A woman's right to choose an abortion if she wants one is one of these issues. Other moral issues include the right to choose one's own death, which of course means physician-assisted suicide. Others include the full legalization of prostitution and renaming and rethinking what prostitution is. Advocates for what is now called the sex trade talk about unions with working conditions, and have renamed what was once considered an immoral act. But there is no greater moral revolution in our society than the one that deals with our gender identity. You know, that includes the acceptance of sex outside of marriage as legitimate and not immoral. It includes the acceptance of couples living together and having children without needing to be married. It includes easy acceptance of no-fault divorce. It includes the acceptance of homosexuality and same-sex marriages. It even includes the power to prosecute and exclude from our society those who may disagree with these new set of values. But there is so much more beyond this. The new approach to gender identity is the next big thing in this road trip without a map. What is now before us is what has been called the transgender revolution. You know, not long ago, the New York Times reported on a transgender man named Andy Inkster. He'd always wanted to have biological children. At the age of 18, he or or she, I guess, it becomes unclear how to address this individual, but Andy, shall we say, underwent a transition from female to male. He received testosterone treatment, eventually underwent surgery to have his breasts removed, but he left his female reproductive organs intact. And in his mid-twenties, he decided it was time. He stopped taking testosterone and started trying to get pregnant. He sought fertility treatment at Bay State Reproductive Medicine Clinic in New York. Although Bay State Facility has a very strong anti-discrimination policy for gender identity, they refused to treat him because they said they had no expertise in treating transgender patients. 
Mr. Inkster found treatment in another medical clinic and got pregnant and bore a child, he said, as a male. In the meantime, successfully sued Bay State Reproductive Medicine for sexual discrimination. There's another recent article in the New York Times. This one is entitled, The New Gay Orthodoxy. Here they stated that the debate regarding acceptance over homosexuality is over. Furthermore, they stated that endorsement of same-sex marriages in every sphere of public life is now a non-negotiable. How did they know that? Well, they knew that because just 10 years ago, 30% of North Americans accepted homosexuality as a normal practice. Today, just a mere decade later, more than 50% do, and that number will continue to grow significantly. That means that those who disagree will become a very small minority in the future. But as I've said, this road trip has barely started. An issue of Time magazine featured television star Laverne Cox, a man who looks very much like a woman. The cover read The Transgender Tipping Point, America's Next Civil Rights Frontier. The article stated that transgender people are those who identify with another gender other than the one they were assigned to at birth. In other words, your gender is now a matter of choice and comfort, not a matter of biological determinism. Modern medicine and science have made this a possibility. Even your biology is no roadmap to gender identity. Well, in order to deal with all this, all manner of social institutions are working to catch up to this new reality. Anti-bullying policies in the schools and workplaces are there to rightly protect those who want to identify themselves in various ways. And in the midst of all of this, many Christians have come to feel that anti-bullying policies have actually been used to bully us. We're told that unless we agree with a morality that has no roadmap, that we ought to be silenced. And that deeply impacts us. For the Bible teaches that to be male and female is the Creator's design, and that to be male or female is a gift from God which we are called upon as a reflection of our trust in our Creator to be embraced. Furthermore, and this is where there's a great controversy today, and that is that the gift of male and female comes with unique roles and responsibilities that directly relate to our gender. What does it mean to be a man, in fact, a godly man? And what does that look like in a society where morality has no roadmap? How do we respond as Christians? Well, we'll hear more right after this. Can I take a brief moment to invite you to join us for our fiscal year-end campaign? God has been so gracious this year, greater opportunity for ministry, and so much more to be accomplished in the year ahead. So I'm excited to tell you that this June, we have been given a $100,000 match pledge from a group of people committed to helping us do all we can through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt. So every dollar you give this month will be matched up to $100,000. I can't express my gratitude enough, but also the opportunity that this presents as we prepare to both sustain and grow the impact of this ministry in the year ahead. Would you make your gift today? Double your impact. Call 1-800-663-2425 or donate today online at backtothebible.ca. And thank you in advance. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. I'm not suggesting that what Christians need to do in this hour is to curse the darkness 
or to create political movements. Look, we all know that secular orthodoxy is always changing. That which is moral at one moment becomes immoral in the next moment. You know, I sometimes marvel that more secular people don't get tired of constantly having cultural elites redefining what's right and wrong and then changing it again. See, what I have in mind is something else. It has always been the case that the gospel, the good and saving news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, the glad tidings that Christ's death on the cross removes our sins and invites us into a relationship of peace with God, that news, yes, that good gospel will always be at odds with any sinful and fallen culture. And when we, as a part of discipleship, teach boys to become men and are very clear as to what that means, and when we teach girls to become women, we will be radically countercultural. But we don't belong to this culture. We belong to Christ, and our bodies are not our own. They belong to our Creator, who, when He designed us, designed us for His purposes. Let the Creator define gender, and we, as His people, will find delight in what He has made. And as I speak about godly manhood this week, I am doing something that previous generations would have been surprised to hear. Why define what we already know? that there is something wonderful and unique about being a godly man, and that there's something wonderful and unique about being a godly woman, well, that should be self-evident. But as we've seen in our day, it needs to be defined. And so to boys and young men and also older men, we're going to talk about godly manhood. Let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now you're going to notice several things from this short passage. Christians are called to reach the lost. And if we reach out to lost people, we will reach out to deeply broken and damaged people. Some of the Corinthians were these things, says Paul. Furthermore, our message is that every single human being is fallen and, and broken and wrecked. And this ruin is felt in every area of our humanity, in our intellect, our emotions, our will, and we are all broken sexually in our gender. So let's be clear. We call broken the person committing adultery, the guy living with his girlfriend, the person hooked on pornography, the person who struggles with same-sex attraction, the person who lusts after a person of the opposite sex and rehearses a sex act or a romantic liaison in his or her heart. We even call broken the couple that's living together outside of marriage. The call of Christ is for all to come to Christ and confess our brokenness, then call it sin, and come to Christ to be healed. There we will find a marvelous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And there we will find grace that washes us from our sin and provides sanctification for growth and holiness. You know, furthermore, Christians must not at any time feel superior to others. In 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions that the, the converts in Corinth came from the sexually broken culture in Corinth. They participated in the brokenness. 
Furthermore, all Christians know the reality of struggling with the very sins that Christ himself condemns. None of us, if we're Christians, are smug or condemning. We're all too aware of our own sins. You know, on commenting on the prevalence of sin still remaining in all believers, it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, Our prayers have stains in them. Our faith is mixed with unbelief. Our repentance is not so tender as it should be. Our communion is distant and interrupted. We cannot pray without sinning, and there is filth even in our tears. In other words, those of us who have grown close to Christ are hardly in a position of moral superiority. Let me again quote Spurgeon. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my riches, but my need. So while we reach out in compassion, it's not enough. If, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that we are washed and sanctified, then it must mean that we define what the Bible teaches about both our sexuality and our gender. See, in this regard, I have four things to say, and I borrow them from Kevin DeYoung, and he's an excellent pastor and Bible teacher. First, there really are prescribed roles given to gender. And when I say that, I want to say to men, you can celebrate your godliness in a unique and masculine way. I, for one, as a man, have not been a fan around the kind of worship songs that have become all too common, in which it almost appears like we're called upon to get romantic with Jesus. You know, some worship has become an emotional orgy, I call it, and it consists of language I find nowhere in my Bible. You know, as a man, I identify much more easily with the words of the old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, Marching as to War, with a cross of Jesus going on before. I understand the call to sacrifice and the call to spiritual warfare and the laying down of my life for the sake of the cross, and I find myself less drawn toward images that I don't find comfortable. I will call for a genuine male spirituality, for a recapture of the heart of testosterone-filled holiness. There are unique ways in which men express their godliness. And second, our gender comes with a divine command. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And therefore, God, the creator of our body, makes demands on the use of our body. According to a number of passages in both the Old and New Testaments, homosexuality is forbidden of us. So is sleeping with anyone, not our lifelong marriage partner. Why? Because with gender comes a divine command regarding how I may use my body. And third, I believe that our appearance needs to celebrate gender complementarianism. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. You know, that same principle is carried on in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks about such things as the length of hair that relates to gender. Now, I am fully aware, as are you, that these things are culturally conditioned. When Paul warns about braided hair in 1 Timothy 2 verse 9, or when Peter does the same in 1 Peter 3 verse 3, we know that in the day in which they were writing, Braided hair meant something very different than what it means for us today. 
But that does not mean that these kinds of commands are no longer relevant. Let me explain what I mean. You know, some Bible commands are given in the context of a culture, but these very commands carry with them a supracultural application. And by that, I mean that there are principles in those commands intended for all God's people at all times. And what some of the commands about dress teaches us is that we should dress in such a way that highlights our gender distinction, not in such a way that blurs the line. In our culture, we might say, men don't wear eyeliner or makeup. Women wear clothing that celebrates your femininity. Now, of course, when I say that, I don't mean that women should wear seductive clothing. You know, modesty is a biblical virtue for women. You know, my years as a pastor, I'd I'd frequently tell women, you can dress to be beautiful without dressing to be seductive. There's a vast difference between a beautiful, dignified, gracious appearance and the kind of clothing that advertises shamelessness. So dress or advertise in a way that deeply internalizes the Creator's design. And fourth, understand that the Bible in many places gives clues and keys to what we today might refer as traditional male and female conduct. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then in verses 11 to 12, he says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So we can see from Paul that there are masculine tendencies and there are feminine tendencies as well. And as we go through the study this week, we're going to talk about how to masculinize our faith and how that can become godliness. Thanks, John, for your message today. But so I can get it clear in my own mind, you're not saying that all women and men need to be alike or there's no room for uniqueness or individuality. For example, a girl who's a tomboy is okay to be a tomboy, to do physical things. A man can express his artistic gifts. He's not limited to hunting or gathering. (laughs) Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm absolutely in agreement with that. My oldest daughter grew up as a tomboy in every way. And she is as feminine as can be. And so I I do want to say that there are uniqueness in personality styles. Uh, As we go along, I think I'm going to try to make more clear what I have in mind. Thanks very much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. What does it mean to celebrate godly manhood? What does that look like and how does being a man of God stand out as being unique? Just some of the thoughts and insights that are discussed in the newest Bible teaching series from Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. This series is designed for men of all ages seeking God out to become the men He designed for us to embrace and for the parent who would be searching for how you might guide your child in their understanding of manhood. This will be an honest search of God's Word that we believe will offer a completely biblical perspective of what it means to be God's man. This month, we're offering you this five-message series, God's Man, for free. All you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 or email us at info at backtothebible.ca and request it to be sent to you. 
And don't forget, this is our fiscal year-end month, and anything you might be able to do to support Back to the Bible Canada financially would be gratefully appreciated. So call us today at 1-800-663-2425, or you can donate online at backtothebible.ca.